Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show, a new chapter in our COVID story. We understand tonight that most virus restrictions will be lifted. Is this Freedom Day? We have the very latest live. Also, Sinn Féin TD Pauline Tully opens up about her horrific experience of domestic violence. And one of the things he said was, look, if, if I can't have you, nobody else can. And I remember standing there when he stabbed me the first time and he, he stabbed me here. And, um, you know, I, I just, I don't know what was going to happen. Later, we'll be live in Washington as Joe Biden marks one year in the Oval Office amid growing global storm clouds and a warning to Russia. Let there be no doubt at all that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight are we on the eve of freedom day it's reported nefit has recommended the lifting of nearly all virus restrictions i'm joined by irish daily mail group editor john lee and by finnegal td jennifer carol mcneil and people before profits paul murphy john you broke this story tonight uh, what can you tell us about the the lifting of of, of the restrictions as recommended by nefit i'm still reading my notes so that's why i'm uh, it, it's it's fairly fresh um Tisha Michal Martin tomorrow will have the honour, I think, of, of ending a, a, the most challenging chapter in our history. Neffet have advised the government that they can, they can give the go-ahead to ease practically every major COVID restriction imposed in society at the moment. So that, you, you name them, um, they're, they're going. Um, all guidance on household visiting, uh, early closing for hospitality uh, and events to end, uh, the ending of capacity restrictions for indoor and outdoor uh, events, uh, even social distancing will be will be ended. Um, as soon as the government decides, there is no in the briefings I received tonight, there is no set time recommended for um, the cabinet to give the go ahead. Effectively, as far as I know, they can start tomorrow. Uh, I think the practicalities of ending everything um, uh, in one day tomorrow, say, are, are very, are very challenging. Certainly by, by Monday, you could see all hospitality and everything else going. Um, I, I, ha I've this just briefed before I came on air that, um, and I think a big and very pleasant surprise for everyone, uh, mask wearing will be advised to end on the 28th of February. All restrictions in schools, uh, will go, um, all restrictions in, uh, in, in hospitality, that's uh, measures like table service, one metre distance between tables, six per table will end. And Claire, I know you're particularly, 
anxious to hear this, nightclubs will be permitted to oh reopen gosh. almost yeah, immediately. That was, that was top of the agenda. Not for, me, not for me personally, but for many people out there who are looking forward to, well, to for getting back to normal. But look, on this, like you've listed everything. I mean, uh, mask wearing still will be in place until the end of February, then we're hearing. So, we're, so I'm briefed. And um, on, the, on the, the COVID certs, um, what, what's happening with them? They are for domestic purposes to go. Uh, will still be, I think, uh, in, in place for international travel, but they are, again, as soon as the government decides to take this advice and enact it, uh, COVID, in a big surprise again, COVID uh, certs are to be wound down effectively from now. <laughs> this will all come as a major surprise because the sense from government, while it was one of positivity, of optimism, they said we will take a staggered approach to this. Is Neffet basically leaving it in the hands of the government to, to sort out the timeline around this now if they're giving the all clear for everything? Well, to go on precedent, um, what would normally have, uh, have happened in the past would be Neffet will send a letter to Stephen Donnelly that's winged its way over to government buildings this evening. Uh, then Tony Holohan, Dr. Tony Holohan, Chief Medical Officer, and perhaps Paul Reid, we, we don't know, could meet with the three party leaders tomorrow and brief them. Between them, and this has always been an interactive process, as much as we, a lot, some people like to say Neffet are dropping orders from on high, that's not the case. They will then agree the timescale for this, go to full cabinet meeting, discuss it again, and then Michal Martin will announce that decision tomorrow evening. As far as I know this evening, there's been no recommendation on the timing of the opening up of society, but there has also, on the other end, not been a, a restriction put on how they do that. Tomorrow, for instance, um, when it's announced that social distancing will end, uh, I can't imagine you or I then maintaining it. So. Yeah. Some Although, things by sheer yeah. force of society, or then again, habit may be there that we'll all keep at it for the rest well, of our this, lives. Well, I this, don't know. well this, is the, this is the question. And on this, Jennifer, when we're hearing this full list, and actually when you hear all the restrictions that are in place, many of them in place for the last two years, being listed out as potentially being lifted tomorrow or in the coming days, it's quite the turn from government, isn't it? It's quite the turn from our public health officials who've maintained such a cautious approach for so long. When you hear it like that, it, it's nearly quite exciting, you know, to, to imagine a future without all of that. And look, I'm mindful that there has to be a decision by government tomorrow. We're, like we're hearing very good, positive news tonight, but there has to be a decision by government tomorrow in relation to timing and the implementation of what sounds like really good news, a step back to normal. We have to remember as well, in, in all of our excitement and, our, and, our, and delight about moving back to normal, all of those people who, who didn't make it through this period and the families who have, who have lost people throughout that period, thinking as well about businesses who have suffered quite a lot. There will be businesses who are reopening um, and reopening fully and, and I wish them all you know, so well, but there are those who have really, really struggled through this period. But look, it does sound like very good at of, uh, good, good news this evening. That's a really positive thing. I mean, that's on foot of the vaccination programme that people have stepped up to and, and participated in. It's because of the way that we've been able to handle this, because of how people have handled it. Um, clearly, the Omicron thing, variant has changed things because of the scale of transmissibility, the scale of infection, and not being that you know dangerous in comparison to the other variants. It really does sound like good news, and um, I, I, you know, we'll see now how government chooses to implement it over time. Good news, Paul. Are you, are you as excited as Jennifer about what you're hearing tonight? Well, look, like everybody, um, I would like as much of a return to normal as is possible, of course. Um, for me, the, the question really is, how do we avoid this being reversed in the future? 
because COVID isn't going to go away tomorrow because of whatever decision that the government makes. We're going to continue to have this quite serious disease, which is airborne. Um, and there's two key things in that for me. One is domestic, which is the question of ventilation and also the question of masks, mm. the right of workers to have clean air. And I think we need to hear action from the government saying that we're going to make workplaces and public spaces as safe as is possible. We're going to have, as our bill, which was passed through second stage at the start of December, did set minimum standards for CO2 levels in air in all workplaces uh, or ensure that we can have filtration. Like, you, you know, in schools at the moment. Yeah, for example, in our yeah. schools, if they're removing all those restrictions that are in place, that presumably would include um, the CO2 monitoring to a point, that, that, that there, will be, there may be a push I, to close those windows a bit. I would certainly hope that that is not the route that they go down. I thought there was a hint in what Leo Varadkar said today in leaders' questions pointing in that direction, but that would be very worrying because there is an alternative to teachers attempting to teach and students attempting to learn in temperatures of seven, eight, nine degrees. And that is to install the HEPA filters okay. that we've been calling for for over a year that the government says they're going to do, but they've been dragging their feet, which means that many principals are telling us they won't be in place until the summertime. Um, would you and be in favour also of keeping masks in place? We're hearing about it masks seems to me wearing it, it wouldn't, being removed it, at the exactly. end of February. It doesn't make sense to get rid of uh, wearing masks. This is still going to be an airborne uh, virus. It makes sense for people to continue to wear masks. The other point I just made quickly is internationally, we need to try to avoid, and we can't guarantee it, but try to avoid new variants, new potentially worse variants than Omicron. The best the best thing we can do to do that is have a, a waiver of, the tr of, of trips, which, as in get rid of the intellectual property that the pharmaceutical companies are sitting on, preventing 40% of the world's population getting access to the vaccines. Okay. Um, Jennifer, just on that point, and you know, Paul has, has pointed to people who may be in vulnerable um, situations, who may be wary to a point about these changes given you know, the, the culture that's almost in place of you know, lockdowns, restrictions, all for the public health good, to now see a full removal of them, um, that people may be wary and worried about this new approach. What would you say to them? Well, I think you know, we've, we've adopted a reasonably a cautious approach insofar as possible based on the data and the evidence that we have. I think Paul is right to identify that a new variant could come along and we'll have to, if that ever happens, react appropriately at that stage too. There's no question but that people have been socialised differently. We've all behaved differently and it's going to take something to unwind that psychologically and emotionally as much as anything else. So we really need to be careful about that. when the bars and clubs and everything reopens as of tomorrow night or next week, every, you know, well, people I think will some be, people, be yeah, running out to them people, and enjoying people them. people are different. Some people will, yeah. And other people will take a more cautious approach and other people will want to and they'll, you know, f f find their way. People are all different, Claire, of so course. The, but I think the point is, one of the it, things, it's up to us to kind of find our own, yeah, our but, own but path through this But I think one of the things, now, though, that a lot of things have changed in COVID. I mean, we have opened up our outdoor dining. We have opened up a whole new world for ourselves, a different way of living over that two years of necessity. But there are a lot of things that can be taken from the COVID experience, improvements that have been made to all of our lives like that, like the HEPA filter, like, you know, these opportunities that I don't think should be lost. Yeah. These are improvements generally that, that, that we can maintain. to the strategy that we're hearing about that, that Micheál Martin said he's going to kind of out, outline uh, a medium-term strategy. Is that regarding restrictions or is it going to sort of look ahead to how we plan? Because one of the criticisms of government, John, has been that we've been very reactive um, rather than proactive when it comes to this pandemic. 
What he did commit to today, this morning uh, on radio, was a, an inquiry into how we have conducted ourselves. So there have been mistakes made, uh, he, he conceded, and that inquiry, we would hope, would advise us to the medium to long term. Uh, we don't know what the medium term planning is beyond that. As of very soon, most restrictions will be gone. And um, I think we will enjoy the elation of that. Um, uh, they go on and on as, you know, the, the work from home advisory is also to be lifted, um, which will be a huge benefit to the city centre. I drove down to Dublin Quays today and I was a bit shocked, I hadn't been down there in a while, that they have, they have um, gone backwards in quality a, a lot. A lot of the buildings I see are, 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 are falling down in some parts of it. So th there's a huge, boost needed for city centres. Um, also, I was surprised to see that um, there will be a lifting of all restrictions on medical facilities and visiting, including nursing homes, which will be... That would be uh, hospital visits, nursing homes, and presumably maternity hospitals yeah. and, and, and all of those areas, which uh, on there's, there's long been calls for, yeah, for yeah, an easing so, of restrictions. Yes as and from a time that the government decides. Like, is this going to be a challenging one for government, do you think, Jennifer, in, in making that decision, in making that call on when these things happen? For example, in our hospitals, there are plenty of people, um, frontline workers, who say, you know, if you can open up the hospitals to all visitors and everything, we, they already have a problem with containing COVID because there still are high numbers of people with, with COVID in our hospitals, whether they're symptomatic or not. These are exactly that, the balance. That, that these are the issues that are going to be coming to the fore now. Yes, these are the ex exactly the balances that government is going to have to consider tomorrow and work out the best combination and the best timing for the unwinding of restrictions, keeping vulnerable people at the centre of that, as has been the approach all the way through. So it is going to be a, a challenge tomorrow to get this right, to get the timing right, to be able to do it in a, in a, in a, in an a reasonable way as we unwind to be able to create caution and space for the future. John is right about the inquiry and I was on the original COVID committee in the early days and we talked about that even at that stage because it was clear that we were doing this live, that everybody, healthcare, government, society generally, we were doing it live. There was so much that we all did well. There's no question but that there's things that we didn't do well and that we have to learn from. This may Will happen the again. Will be on the likes of the nursing homes and, and what happened there? I'm sure it's on every aspect, whether it's the procurement of PPE or the, the, the behavioural infection of this change or that change on all of the different things. This could happen again. There's no, like, I mean, five or 10 years ago, we could face a different pandemic. And what we need to make sure from that inquiry is that we have learned the lessons collectively to prepare us better for if it ever happens again. I guess people will be asking as well, what if a new variant comes along next week? Like, we don't know with this virus, but um, public health officials must be um, under the guidance, um, the expert guidance that they don't see this certainly short term um, in giving those recommendations uh, tonight. But Paul, I kind of want to briefly move on to the issue of the pandemic bonus because it's caused... Um, not really surprisingly, um, a lot of reaction today, uh, fallout to the idea to give it to frontline workers, but de deciding who gets it and who doesn't. And it's, it's the people who don't, um, you know, and controversy around that coming, coming to the fore. Yeah, I mean, originally, certainly what those agency nurses, so people who are working for private agencies in public hospitals, what they were told was that they wouldn't be able to qualify. Um, then the government rode back on that. That's welcome, said they're included. The same applied in terms of people like contract cleaners working for a private company in a public hospital. Again, the government rode back on that. That's welcome. But there are still huge numbers of frontline healthcare workers who are excluded. 
anyone who worked in a private facility. And it's true that the bosses of those private facilities might have done very well out of yeah, COVID. Well, this is the argument. It, 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 this doesn't would mean be it the from government it is. is that like we, we paid these private hospitals well and it's up to the bosses then to reward their staff. Uh, sure. <laughs> but, but I understand that that's not the nature of, unfortunately, how the capitalist system operates. The other point I'd make, and it's a very important one, I think, is the point about the carers. I mean, the government has said, and it's very cruel, oh, well, they don't qualify because they weren't really on the front line. But in reality, the, the carers, right, who are doing huge unpaid labour, estimated at 20 billion euros a year that they save the state, they, they were keeping people, vulnerable people, away from the front line. They were doing that work when the rest of society had to shut down. They were left completely isolated in very difficult circumstances. And they're probably the only group in society that out of all the things that are being done, they actually lose out because Jennifer, the bank holidays make Jennifer, it harder for them. Jennifer, was it a bad move not to include the family carers here? Well, I think this, uh, what we've done for family carers is actually much more significant. Which is We're going what? to bring in family carers into the state contributory pension. Now, that's worth an awful lot more than a now, thousand Was that euro. a bit of a knee-jerk move? No, not at all. That's part of the Pensions Commission work that's been going on for quite a long time. Separate in addition, to the COVID response or... It, or but or but a, that's what's anticipated for family payment. carers. And I think then as well it's important to recognise there's lots of different carers. There's family carers in their own home or with a relative who are with that person predominantly, but there's other carers working for the HSE who are visiting dozens and, and, and dozens of yeah, homes. And they are getting, and they are the, they getting, are getting the payment. Yes, exactly. Be, but, but they're, but they're but doing they're, essentially the same well, job not as doing the family the, No, they're not carer. doing the same job. But they're not doing the same How, job. They're, they're, what, they're what doing are, what different, different jobs. Doing? Well, one person is, they're, they're looking after a relative, a single person. They're not, a, the, the person going to lots of houses is exposed more to the risk of actually getting COVID. And the approach taken by government was to identify, because you have to put some policy pillars around what you're going to do. Cl people in a clinical setting wearing, you know, who were exposed, not at risk of exposure, but actually exposed to COVID day in, day out, at a time when there was no vaccinations. Okay. But those people have had a different experience to, 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 to pretty much everybody else in the country, much more difficult. I remember on the COVID committee, nurses coming into us at that stage, already deeply traumatised from what I, they went I through. Think, it is different. I think that everyone accepts that and they, they truly are the heroes of this pandemic. Everyone is in acceptance on that point, at least. We'll have to leave it there for now. My thanks to John, Jennifer and Paul. Next, TD Pauline Tully shares her own story of domestic violence. He actually brought them down on one stage to say goodbye to me. He said, say goodbye to your mother, but he wouldn't let them near me. And like the two little lads were there with crying. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today.
Welcome back. Sinn Féin TD Pauline Tully has spoken about horrific domestic violence she suffered at the hands of her former husband, the convicted Gartha killer Pierce McCauley. The former IRA man was sentenced to 12 years with two suspended for stabbing Pauline multiple times on Christmas Eve in 2014. The attack took place in front of her two young sons who were four and seven at the time. Well, I sat down with Pauline who shared her story with me and viewers are warned that they may find some of the content in this interview upsetting. Um, so Pauline, you were one of many TDs who stood up in the doll yesterday uh, to speak about the issue of gender-based violence and on domestic violence, it's a story that you're very sadly familiar with because your attacker was your husband yes. and it happened in your own home. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about how you met your husband, Pierce McCauley? I was. Um, I met him in the year 2000. I met him when I visited Castlereagh Prison. The reason I visited was I was a Sinn Féin councillor and there was a prisoner in there, a political prisoner from Cavan, and I went to pay a, a visit to him and at the same time meet the other Republican prisoners who were there and Piers Macaulay was one of those. So that's how we met. And the relationship developed in the months after that. Um, so I would visit on a regular basis and he would ring me uh, regularly as well. So that's how it started, that's how I met him. Did his past worry you in any way, the fact that he was in jail for his role in the killing of guard the Jerry McCabe um, in 1996, did you have any reservations? Um, around domestic violence, no. Um, like, I, I suppose obviously I wouldn't have married him if I had, you know, and the same with many women, they will not marry or move in with a partner if they thought for one moment that he was going to be violent against them. So I didn't. And even from comments he made, I would have thought he, he absolutely was abhorred by any sort of domestic violence, you know. So um, I had no qualms on that basis, no. And you say domestic violence is more than just physical violence. How did it begin for you? When did you start seeing the signs of controlling behaviour in the relationship? Yeah, well, I suppose maybe naively for me, I would have thought domestic violence was physical violence. And um, and there wasn't any physical violence in the relationship until um, 2014. And, and that's when I got a bar in order at the time. And that's prior to the, 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 the final attack. But um, I suppose I would have noticed things, like, I suppose in hindsight I noticed things at the time and would have put it down to the fact that he was in prison and had been in prison for a number of years and that he was just because he wasn't out and about um, and getting to know and see where I was going that, um, you know, maybe he had just sort of this little, I don't know, uh, query in his mind, you know, about what was going on. So I put it down to our excuse, the, the behaviour at the time. And I suppose he would ring me a lot and in, in the beginning you'd think that's, attention and you know it, it, it's nice and somebody wants to talk to you wants to spend time with you but after a while it becomes maybe that it's controlling because he wants to know where I was and who I was with and what I was doing at all times. And upon um, his release from prison did that behaviour escalate then? You see times were fine sometimes you know it, it, there could be weeks or even months when everything seemed okay and then something would happen be almost like a, a build-up of tension. Now we had a drink problem which I wouldn't have known about when he was in prison. But when drinking certain drinks, he became very, very violent. Now, what he would do, he would be very angry and become verbally abusive and threatening. So there were times where he didn't actually hit me, he threatened to. It came to the point in the summer preceding the attack on Christmas Eve that, that your marriage had come to the point that you had separated because of this. Yes. Um, you reached out for help 
you had you had talked to people about this, had you? I know my sister rang the house one night and it was after being around where he had been uh, insulting and it would be horrible language now, I wouldn't repeat it here, what he would say and what he would call me and then he would insult my family and run them down. But he answered the phone to my sister and then he gave it to me and I just happened to say to her, I hope he didn't say anything to you and she says, what do you mean? So then I told her what sort of things he'd been saying and she said to me, um, Pauline, that's abuse. You can't take that, that is abuse. Um, so I suppose I, I started to kind of, you know, follow up more. I would say to him, you can't say that to me, that, that's abuse. I would, you know, and, and repeat what she'd been saying to me. Um, but it was um, in February, mid-February of 2014 that he actually physically assaulted me. And it was in Dublin, actually, after a function in a hotel. And um, that was it then. He, he hit me and he tried to choke me that night and only for other people staying in the hotel who were walking by the room. And I kept screaming. I kept screaming as much as I could and fighting them off. And this couple, thankfully, um, there was two couples passing by and the, they, they heard the noise and, and knocked on the door. And um, he, he did answer and I got out and, and they helped me and brought me down to reception and I, I got the guards that night. But on Christmas Eve in 2014, and you had two boys together, um, he came to the house can you take us through what happened that morning? Yeah, like I suppose from we had separated, I never denied him access to the boys and he would pick them up at different times and um, so on. Um, so he was due to come up on Christmas Eve around one o'clock to pick up the boys and bring them for, for lunch. I was going to prepare dinner. He was actually coming to the house for Christmas dinner, just for the dinner, you know, the next day. And... Um, so we had kind of a lazy morning in the house, myself and the two, two lads, and then we were going up the stairs to, to get ready. And next thing, one of the boys said to me, there's somebody knocking at the door. And I went down and looked out, and I can see out the window of the kitchen, I can see the back door, and that's the door most people come to, and there was no one there. And next thing I heard a banging on the front door, and um, I can't see out my front door, it's a solid door. So I just assumed, oh sure, it's only 11 o'clock, sure, it must be a neighbour or somebody calling. Mm -hmm. So I opened the door, but even if I knew it was him, I probably would have opened the door anyway because I was expecting him to come a couple of hours later. And I just thought, oh God, something must have happened. You know, because his face, like I said, what's wrong? And he came in the door and his first thing uh, that he did was he punched me in the left eye and knocked my head back, I actually hit a mirror behind. And my finger then was out at an angle because I obviously, without realising, put up my hand to protect myself and the finger must have got caught in the punch as well. And uh, my two boys were standing on the stairs and like I can still remember the shock and horror on their faces. And um, then he had tracksuit bottoms on and he, and he rummaged in his, in, his, in his pocket and I was like, oh my God, what's he going to take out? And he took out a knife. It was a steak knife. What were your thoughts then? Uh, I was really frightened. Um, I thought, what, how am I going to get out of this? Um, he was barking orders at the boys to go up and stay in the room. I said to the eldest, he was only seven and a half, I said to him, ring 999. And he said, don't you dare. And you know, this was going on. The little lad went up and rang 999, but he didn't know enough to stay on the line or, you know, God help him, I'd never told him what to do in that sense. He was uh, seven years of age. Seven years of age. Um, so um, my ex-husband made me go into the kitchen and started in on a tantrum. And one of the things he said was, look, if, if I can't have you, nobody else can. And I remember standing there when he stabbed me the first time and he, he stabbed me here and um, you know I, I just I don't know what was going to happen because 
I could hear air and then there was blood gushing out and um, I just grabbed a tea towel and put it up to me. But I, I didn't know if I had five minutes to live, if I had hours, if I was going to be okay. You know, I had no idea. He made me sit on the floor then in case somebody going by would see in one of the windows. And I suppose this went on then for about two, two and a half hours. Um, he stabbed me several more times. I ended up, my whole hand was cut because I try and protect myself. He tried to cut my throat. Um, and all the time it was, um, you know, who is he? Who's this man you're seeing? And I think he had it in his head that I was seeing someone that knew him and we were laughing at him. That was because I, otherwise, because in the end up, I just made up a name and said, he's not going to stop this. And, you know, so I made up a name and he kind of just settled a little bit then. Now he had began, begun drinking again. Um, I didn't know at this stage, but he had drank a bottle of vodka on the way to my house. Um, but he, he was drinking more. Um, it was a bottle of Cool Swan I had in the fridge. And it came into my head, I hope he drinks and drinks and drinks and finally it, maybe he'll just conk out. Um, but I was on the floor, there was blood everywhere. And then he did come over and he lay down on the floor. Like he was saying first of all, oh, I bring you up and put you in the bed upstairs. And I just thought, oh my God, if he takes me upstairs, I have no hope of ever baking it down those stairs and out. So I kept saying, no, no, there's too much blood when, when I'm moving, you know. Um, and he kept saying to me, God, would you ever die? You know, he did what bring did down- What did you think when he said that to you? Would you ever die? Your children were upstairs, yeah. they were in the house. I kept thinking that- They knew what was happening, their mum. Yeah. Well, they were upstairs. He actually brought them down at one stage to say goodbye to me. He said, say goodbye to your mother, but he wouldn't let them near me. And like, the two little lads were there with crying like. And um, they told me afterwards that, you see, when he'd come, he, he was sitting there and he, he'd scrape the, the knife on the top of the, the you know, the, the countertop, laughing. And then he, when he'd come over to me, I'd scream. Now, you know, I don't know, I knew probably no one could hear me other than the two lads. But they actually said that the screaming gave them comfort in that they knew I was still alive. Because when it went quiet for a long time, they thought, oh, mammy must be dead. And you did manage to escape, Pauline. I did. Um, Pierce McCauley was handed a 12-year sentence for his crimes, yeah. with two of those years suspended. Yes. But he will be released from jail this summer. He will, yeah. He's, After he's serving seven and a half years? Seven and a half years, yeah. Do you believe he served enough time for his crime? No, well, I would have hoped at the time that he would have been brought up on a charge of attempted murder, but he wasn't. It was a um, Section 4 assault, so which, you know, attempted murder would have carried a longer sentence. It doesn't mean he would have got a longer sentence. He got the maximum sentence allowed OK, two years were suspended. The judge initially suspended four, but thankfully the DPP appealed it and it, it went back to two. So, um, look, if, if when he comes out, he leaves me and the two children alone, I'll be happy that he has served his time and that he has, you know, moved on and learned his lesson. Do you believe he will leave you alone? I don't honestly know. Um, and as I keep saying to myself, I have no control over that because he's going to do what he's going to do. But all I can do is be, you know, vigilant and prepared. But I do know that I have huge support. I have support of, you know, family and neighbours and friends, but I have the support of, of the Republican family as well. And that's really important to me. 
Did you have any fear at all at reaching out for help, you know, in what is a tight-knit Republican community with your ex-husband standing, as it were? Did, did you find it difficult in any way to reach out at the time all of this was happening, Pauline? No, I have to say the, the response I got from everybody within the, in Sinn Féin and, you know, Republicans in the area and so on was, was immense. Um, they were all horrified by what happened. And... Um, they were just there to support me in whatever way that they could. And that support has continued. Um, you're a TD for Cavan Monaghan since 2020. Yeah. Many people watching will say, how did you pick yourself up from that horrendous ordeal and become what you are now today, which is serving your constituents um, in Dáil Éireann? Um, what, what sort of hope would you offer people who've been through you know, awful cases such as this, who have been the victims of domestic violence, that they can indeed, you know, rise up from it. I suppose I was determined that he was not going to ruin my life. I survived. I was lucky I survived. I was lucky I survived without any serious injury. A lot of, of women have not. Mm. Um, but I was determined that I was going to be then a single parent, that I owed it to my two sons, you know, to be strong for them. And that that violence does, is not the way forward, it's not, it's, that kind of behaviour is not normal um, and was not going to beat me down. Like I, was, I was always conscious that I would, could never stay long term in a relationship like that where it would influence my sons and um, I think I would say to women who find themselves in a situation if there are children involved to think of them and you know, get the advice and get the help to get out of that relationship. It's not easy but the, the, the help is there. Pauline, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Pauline Tully there. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in that interview, helpline information is available on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. You can hear more of Pauline's story on Kira Phelan's political correspondent with the Irish Mirror and her podcast, The Glass Ceiling. Now, coming up next, our look back at the big stories of the week and we're live in Washington, so stay with us. Welcome back. Joe Biden has been marking his first year in America's Oval Office amid very real fears of a global conflict between Russia and Ukraine, a deadly pandemic and deep political polarisation at home. New correspondent uh, Simon Marks joins us now from Washington. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight, Simon. Uh, a year in office and Joe Biden made his speech. He talked about Russia paying a heavy price if Putin launches a Ukraine uh, invasion. What do you make of this commentary and how it escalates matters globally? Yeah, Claire, I seem to have lost your audio, but uh, Joe Biden absolutely today was engaged in a bit of a do-over from last night's uh, press conference where uh, he uh, indicated uh, something that uh, US officials have not previously said, that a relatively low-level Russian incursion of uh, Ukraine would not necessarily spark a full-scale NATO uh, and US response against Russia. Today, uh, the president engaged 
engaged in a do-over of those comments, uh, insisting that President Vladimir Putin is under absolutely no illusions about the resolve of the United States and the resolve of its NATO and European allies to hit back hard whatever degree of Russian uh, invasion or incursion of Ukrainian territory might take place. The president seemed to suggest last night that he expects a Russian invasion to occur, although at one point in that press conference he said it depends what time, uh, what, what side of bed Vladimir Putin gets out of each day as to which direction he thinks the Russian leader leader is heading. Uh, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, will be meeting Russian uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov uh, in Geneva tomorrow for what I think we have to conclude are going to be crisis talks with every indication now uh, that uh, that Russian border with Ukraine remains a substantial tinderbox, more than 100,000 Russian troops massing along that border. And Simon, I'm hoping um, you can hear me now, but just looking back and reflecting on Biden's uh, first year in office, he's still grappling with all those crises that he inherited, the pandemic, economic uncertainty, and a very divided US society. Yeah, absolutely. Polarised, split down the middle, a society that is still divided uh, along the uh, lines uh, of truth versus lies. Uh, President Biden's uh, election yard signs just over a year ago said uh, Biden-Harris uh, truth over lies. But it is far from evident uh, that the American public is yet uh, ready to accept uh, Joe Biden in office. We're seeing polling data that suggests 71% of Republicans believe that he is illegitimate in office, that the 2020 election was, as President Trump falsely maintains, uh, rigged and the presidency was stolen from him. And more broadly, President Biden is underwater on every major issue besetting the United States. He said yesterday that he had underestimated uh, the determination of Republicans to refuse to work with him uh, in any manner up on Capitol Hill. It's not clear why he would have underestimated that. They refused uh, to work with Barack Obama uh, for eight years when Joe Biden was serving as vice president. Uh, he, of course, has got uh, enormous difficulty corralling his own Democratic Party caucus on Capitol Hill to get behind some of the key planks of his legislative agenda that remain stuck there. You're seeing uh, particularly civil rights leaders and African-American voters furious with the president. They say he hasn't done enough to bring crucial, crucial voting uh, rights legislation across the finishing line, young voters deserving, deserting him in droves because he hasn't made good on pledges to alleviate college debt in the United States. We are 10 months away from midterm elections that will be a referendum on Joe Biden's presidency. At the moment, the Republicans very confident that they are going to recapture control of Congress. Were that to happen, it would neuter Joe Biden's presidency. All right, Simon Marks in Washington, thanks for joining us tonight. Now, time now for a look back at the big stories of the week, and I'm joined by former Dublin Lord Mayor Hazel Chu, businesswoman Nora Casey, and political scientist and commentator Ona Malley. And just to say, we won't be talking directly about the Ashling Murphy case, as that is now the subject of court proceedings and is sub judice. Um, but just to go uh, back to 
Pauline Tully, who we heard from, who sat down very bravely um, with us um, today and told her story of domestic violence, Nora, um, and the outcome there for her um, and the impending release of, of her ex-husband from prison this year. Um, for you on that story, um, many may know of your own personal experience with domestic violence. Did that hit home? Hugely, like it was hard to listen to it, to be honest. And I'm sure it was very hard for her to say because I was the person who sat on the Late Late Show couch and had to relive that experience. And it was the first time ever in my life I had spoken about it publicly. And I really felt I was back there with the knife and the broken ribs. And, you know, even now I have um, broken bones on my face from a very brutal assault. And sometimes when I'm on this show, people tweet and say that my mouth is a bit funny. Um, and even at your happiest times when you should be smiling, I'm always conscious of the fact that that side of my mouth goes down because of that incident. So when I listened to her, I just felt for all the women who have to give testimony, you know, should we have to give testimony? No, nobody ever wants to relive the worst moments of their life. But you know what it does? Sometimes when I talk about it, not too often, I'll come off the show and women will reach out to me. I have a small group of women that I work with that have very complex domestic violence cases. And although this week has been just so, I think, astounding for me, this level of support and, you know, this solidarity and outrage and emotion that people have had has just been amazing and deepened people's understanding, I think, about the issues around violence against women. But since I was a student nurse, which is a long time ago, I've been making conscious decisions about where I walk and what I do. And at some point we have to say, you know, we need to do something better. It's not just about hoping to eliminate male violence, it's about practical issues. Because, you know, like what Pauline said is, you're not that woman. You weren't my woman. All the time during COVID when people said, stay home, stay safe. The open secret in Ireland is that homes are not safe for many women and children. And we just keep paying lift service to it. We don't do enough for them. We don't have enough spaces for them when they want to flee their, their safety, you know? Yeah, Hazel, we've begun this national conversation. It's now on the political agenda, very much to the fore. And, and looking ahead to what can be done, both from a legislative point of view um, and a political, a political might, whether it is there, to see real change around uh, gender-based violence. How do we go about changing the culture? Um, doing what we haven't done to date, we failed to do. We failed on so many fronts to do things, Claire. Like I, I was talking to to a journalist today who have been covering these watershed moments of uh, uh, gender-based violence, and her thing was, "Will it change?" And that's all, that, that's a question on everyone's minds because we are talking about how we need to uh, introduce a new policy when it comes to education and reform, when it comes to uh, uh, criminal justice, and people are saying, "Oh no, that's too far off." But no, it's not. There are immediate things. We we can do. Like, if you look at simple things like consent and anti-harassment, which is something that this minister needs to introduce in terms of primary and secondary education and has been asked by the Rape Crisis Centre and several lobby groups, then it needs to be done now. These are immediate things, not just a long-term systemic change. So 
right now, that, those are the items we need to look at, the policy side of education. And then we need to look at legislative reform, like such strangulation, like stalking bill that's coming, uh, that should be coming through. So there are things that need to be done immediately. People are talking about it now, we need to do it now. And I've noticed now a lot more uh, male TDs have been talking about how it's past the time of listening. Great, then if it's past the time of listening, it is your job to push for something and do something better. Um, Ona Mali, the idea that men now must act, men must have these conversations, that's been a real focus this week. Yeah, and I've kind of struggled with it a bit because I've, I'm probably because of who I am, a middle-class, middle-aged man, uh, I, I, and people kind of talk about rape culture out there, and maybe I, I just don't see it and I don't, I've never experienced it in Ireland. I mean, I have lived in Spain where you could actually see it on the street. There was kind of a machismo on the street. You could see men actually mistreating their partners and wives on the street. And it was kind of common. And you could say, you know, Spain had that problem. Whereas in, in Ireland, I, I, I don't see it. And Do you so think it's I'm, because you're a man? Yep, possibly. Well, probably. Um, and I mean, I was talking to my wife and daughter about it last night. And they were kind of saying, you know, there, there's pressures in order to kind of perform sexually in ways that I suppose maybe I grew up in a different time in kind of Ireland in the 1980s where any sort of sex was probably unimaginable for, for most, most of us. And that's probably changed now because expectations may have changed because teenage boys can see pornography more or less immediately. But I think, I mean, I think also that we do need, as, as Nora said, to kind of think about practice, as well as just kind of changing the culture. We need to think about practical things like, you know, I saw Holly Kearns speak the other day in the Dáil about just creating more women's refuges. And so these are kind of simple things that can be done that will give, so a woman sitting in a home knows that yeah. if she walks out that door, she'll have somewhere to go to. Yeah, the key, the, the safe spaces as well. And there are so many uh, practical and immediate measures that can be done, but also that long-term approach that very much needs to be started right now. I want to move on to the big news that we heard tonight around the pandemic restrictions and the idea that really we are coming to the point now of uh, of, of Freedom Day. We don't know, will it be tomorrow? Will it be in the coming days? But Neffet have certainly appeared, by all accounts, with these recommendations to give the go-ahead to reopen everything. Nora, is that something you're happy about? Very happy. It's been a miserable January, I have to say. I don't think I know anybody that didn't have COVID, including almost my entire workforce. So when I say the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, of which I, you know I'm huge fans of, I publish Food & Wine magazine, never understood why they became the pariahs of COVID. You know, I always felt safe, hugely safe going to restaurants. So didn't feel safe in other people's houses, by the way, and in certain other places. But you know, I couldn't understand why they were hit so hard. But also for myself, I think loads of businesses in the first few weeks were hit very hard. You know, I mean, we all struggled with not having enough staff and not being able to do the things that we needed to do, especially after Christmas and making up revenues and everything. But I really do hope that we can live with COVID. Um, I think that it's great to imagine that we might be able to go back to some of the things that we were able to do um, before that March, you know. Yeah, um, do you think, uh, I mean... Uh, 
I mean, I don't know, personally for me, when I heard all this tonight, it was like, how will we start even kind of coping with this? There's a lot to take on because of all the, the caution, all the restrictions that have been there for two years now. It will be a big change for us, but I, I, I think in the most part, it, it's a positive one, isn't it? it? It's a really positive one. It's a massive change though. Like you look at where we were at, this time last year, we were told, listen, it's only going to be a few months lockdown and we ended up being locked down to May. So to have an announcement to say, listen, it should be lifted in the coming weeks, that's hugely positive. But to Nora's point, I think there's there's so many industries that have been left behind now, especially rest, uh, restaurant pubs. But I look at nightlife. I look at people who have been out of jobs and who are seeking to find out what the supports are. We need to start planning for that. So it's one thing lifting, then it's another thing to make make sure we plan safely for opening. Um, another big story, and no surprise to anyone uh, at home wondering wh where all their money is going. The cost <laughs> of living is at a 20-year high. Um, it's incredibly different, uh, difficult. A, a new report from the CSO out this week also on housing, on how it is still out of reach for so many people, Owen. Yeah, and I mean, the worst thing about housing is that it's primarily a rent problem. Uh, so rents are really out of control and you have a lot of people who are probably able to afford a mortgage who can pay to buy a house but are locked out essentially possibly because of central bank rules that won't allow them to borrow to buy the house that they can easily afford and so it means that they're paying huge rents where a mortgage in fact would help them save money so probably the government probably needs to work with the central bank in trying to figure out how to how to allow these people who who can afford to own their own homes to actually own their own homes you'd agree with that nora yeah and it's not just housing i think almost every sector of life has gone up you know in my own industry like i publish magazines print has gone up um paper has gone up Utilities have gone up, obviously energy costs have gone up. People out there, as we move back into an open economy, there are lots of businesses who need to recoup their revenues and then there's a natural inflation that's happening, particularly in the area of energy. Okay, challenging year ahead, but some positive news tonight, we hope. Well, that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms from all the late team here. Good night, do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.